Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wayspur Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. France 24 has this eye popper of a headline. Third patient cured of HIV after receiving stem cell cancer treatment. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we're on number three now. So uh, this is some pretty good news. Today, we're talking about a man known as the Dusseldorf patient. He's become the third person declared cured of HIV after receiving a stem cell transplant that has, I mean, you know, just bonus, also treated his leukemia, according oh, to the study. Oh, I didn't realize. Wow. When they said cancer treating, I thought just like generically cancer treating. No, his cancer treating <laughs> drug. Okay. <laughs> kind of remarkable, right? They just sort of threw that in there, way to bury the lead. But, you know, two other cases with both HIV and cancer, they have previously been reported as cured in scientific journals following this high-risk procedure. And now, the details of the Dusseldorf patient's cure have been revealed in the journal Nature Medicine. So he was diagnosed with HIV in 2008, and then three years later, diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, which is a very life-threatening form of blood cancer. And in 2013, he had a bone marrow transplant using stem cells from a female donor with a rare mutation in her CCR5 gene. Why is that important? Well, that mutation has been found to stop HIV from entering cells. Hmm. So the Dusseldorf patient then ceased antiretroviral therapy for HIV in 2018, just got off the meds. Four years later, consistent testing found no trace of HIV returning in his body. The patient said in a statement that he was proud of his worldwide team of doctors who succeeded in curing him of HIV and at the same time, of course, of leukemia. That's in his quote. So even he just kind of second class citizen. Right, right. (laughs) He said he celebrated in a big way the 10 year anniversary of his transplant on Valentine's Day, adding that the donor was the guest of honor. The recoveries of two more people with HIV and cancer, the so-called New York and City of Hope patients, were announced at different scientific conferences last year, though research has yet to be published on those cases. And While a cure for HIV has been long sought after, the bone marrow transplant procedure we're talking about here is a very severe and dangerous operation. So it's Mm -hmm. really only suitable for a very small number of patients who suffer from both HIV and blood cancers. Not only that, you got to find a bone marrow donor who has got this rare CCR5 mutation. Mm. That's another challenge. Yeah. I mean, I guess the idea is like, well, this person has leukemia, so they're getting a bone marrow transplant. Let's make sure we pick the right donor so we can also find out if we can cure their HIV while we're at it. Yeah, maybe the leukemia was buried a little bit because we have had not necessarily cures, but we have had been able to keep that at bay. Right. HIV is we haven't. I mean, I guess basically what it means is if you have HIV and you want it cured, you got to go get leukemia somewhere. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't recommend that. I'm not saying it's a good idea. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. 
This article comes to us from ArsTechnica.com. It's titled, Sci-Fi Becomes Real as Renowned Magazine Closes Submissions Due to AI Writers. Uh-oh. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So, on Monday, the editor of the renowned sci-fi publication, Clark's World Magazine, announced that he had temporarily closed story submissions due to a massive increase in machine-generated stories sent to the publication. In a graph shared on Twitter, Clark's World editor Neil Clark tallied the number of banned writers submitting plagiarized or machine-generated stories. (laughs) The numbers totaled 500 in February, up from just over 100 in January, and a low baseline of around 25 in October 2022. Huh. The rise in banned submissions roughly coincides with the release of ChatGPT on November 30th, 2022. I mean, what's wild to me is that they had any before GPT became public. Because there's a very limited number of people who had access to that. And so you sort of know who's trying to submit stories at that point, don't you? (laughs) Yeah, well, these are total numbers of bands, I should clarify. Oh, okay. So before, it was mostly plagiarism, but now it's machine-generated submissions. Mm, Okay. So it's completely changed the nature of what's being, you know, fraudulently sent in, so to speak. Got it, yeah. I guess the courts will decide that. Right. Mm Since 2006, Clark's World has published renowned sci-fi authors and won several Hugo Awards. Among sci-fi publications, it is well known for having an open submission process and typically pays 12 cents per word, which does make some sense why Mm -hmm. you would be so targeted if you're actually paying people to submit. Right. But, you know, at the same time, you're probably going to see this happen to other writing contests and whatnot regardless. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if y'all or our listeners recall that whole crazy deal with the AI-generated children's videos that would get really messed up and weird because they Mm -hmm. were like these iterative processes and then YouTube had to put on all of these child protection Mm -hmm. policies and recognition content and whatnot. I mean, that can really happen at an unprecedented scale in any area of content. Scale and speed. That's what kind of freaks me out. Yeah, that's the crazy thing about all of it. So, the problem of AI-authored content isn't unique to Clark's World. On Tuesday, Reuters wrote a report about the rise of AI-generated ebooks on Amazon. They identified over 200 ebooks on the Amazon Kindle store that listed ChatGPT as the author or co-author. The influx of AI-generated content has left Clark's World in an awkward position of trying to keep the bar to submission high enough to keep away the spammers, but not so high that discourages undiscovered writers or writers from certain regions of the world who might be unfairly targeted by geographical-based bans. It's worth reiterating that, so far, tools that purport to detect text written by LLMs have low accuracy rates, often returning false positives when tested with human-written text, so they aren't really a viable solution. Well, and if you train the AI on how to spot what's bad AI writing, you're also training the AI to write better. Like if you're showing it its mistakes, then it's like, oh, okay, now I know how to make something that would pass the sniff test. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like me having a father as a lawyer just uh, made me learn to lie really well. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, then let's talk about who's responsible for all this. Nice. (laughs) This is from Gizmodo. How Embroidery, Piano, and French Lessons Made the First Computer Programmer. Mm. So Ada Lovelace, or Ada King, Countess of Lovelace, after her marriage, (laughs) drew from many different fields for her work. Her parents separated shortly after her birth, though. And even though this was a time when women couldn't own property and had very few legal rights, her mother actually retained custody. But it's not like she grew up poor or anything. She was still aristocracy. Which is probably why the mother kept custody, because if she hadn't had money, they wouldn't have. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up in an aristocratic family, 
she was home tutored, where she studied French and Italian, music and handicrafts like embroidery. Less common for the time, though, is she studied math and continued to work with math tutors even into her adult life. So she was able to draw upon these lessons when she wrote her computer program, which were a set of instructions for a mechanical calculator that had been built, but only in part. So it wasn't made yet. It was kind of designed, this mechanical calculator. Mm. Hmm. This calculator machine was known as the analytical engine conceived of by mathematician, philosopher, and inventor Charles Babbage. But in the late 1840s, Babbage wasn't doing so well. He had lost his government funding, fallen out with the craftsmen that could build the machine, and was all but thrown in the towel when Lovelace stepped in to help. To make Babbage's calculator known to the British audience, she proposed to translate into English an article that described the machine written in French by an Italian mathematician and published in a Swiss journal. I, that, I oh, that. there was no way they were going to understand that. Come yeah. on, folks. Yeah. And some scholars believe Babbage encouraged her to add her own notes. Either way, she did. And mm -hmm. boy, did she. Her notes were <laughs> twice as long as the original article. She described <laughs> how to code with punched holes, like those used for the jacquard weaving loom, a device that used punch cards to automate weaving patterns in fabric. And having learned embroidery, she recognized that the repetitive patterns used in the loom were similar to the repetitive steps of math. But sadly, despite how brilliant she was and talented, she didn't pursue a scientific career after that. She was independently wealthy, so she never really had to. Right, right. She was and having never fun. earned anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, however, it also gave her work more legitimacy for the time. Mm. Because at the time, financial independence equated to the capability of impartial conduct in scientific experiments. Which is still somewhat true today. You start looking Correct. at, you know, who funded this study that says cigarettes don't cause cancer? Oh, it was Philip Morris? Okay. That changes <laughs> right, things, exactly. you know? Right. Four out of five doctors smoke camels. I exactly. remember those 1950s <laughs> ads. But really, the point of this is it's her ability to draw on multiple disciplines. Right now, we're in a very specialized, mm -hmm. and sometimes that's good. I'm not going to say specialization is bad. <laughs> I want my neurosurgeon to be a specialist. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's like, this is exactly like this one game I played when I was a kid. It's fine. Like <laughs> <laughs> so next link. Next link. All right. This next one is from Ars Technica, and it's called These Scientists Lugged Logs on Their Heads to Resolve Chaco Canyon Mystery. I like where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> and there are photos. Yes. So Chaco Canyon is an area of New Mexico that used to belong to a thriving population of ancestral Puebloan natives. So not Pueblo Native Americans, but the ancestors of those tribes. So this was between 900 and 1150 CE. And they built impressively massive structures for their time using mostly wooden logs, which was a little unusual. A lot of civilizations at that time were using bricks or carved stone. But these guys, the houses were 100 percent logs. In particular, the Chacoans were famous for their so-called great houses, which were generally four to five stories tall and averaged 200 rooms each, with the largest boasting as many as 700 rooms. Archaeologists estimate that to build a single great house, they would have needed around 200,000 trees. And the size and types of trees that they were using were not exactly close by, with some coming from up to 70 miles away. So the question, as it always is with ancient architecture, is how did they do it? Because according to Roger Cram, an emeritus professor of integrative physiology at the University of Colorado, 
the people of Chaco Canyon didn't have draft animals or even wheels. Oh, well, then it must be ancient aliens. Ancient aliens. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They did have wide roads, which would have allowed people to simply carry the logs. But if you start doing the calculation of the size of their population and how many people it would have taken and a typical person's walking speed, it just didn't seem like that was a viable possibility. Essentially, the math only worked out if you had a maximum of two people on each log, and these logs were estimated to be more than 600 pounds each. And that was actually Cram's first big breakthrough, was realizing that the weight estimates for these logs was way off. Because the original estimates that everyone had just taken as a given since someone had come up with them in the 1980s, those were based on the weight of freshly cut wood. But Cram says the Chacoans would have dried the logs before transporting them. And the loss of all that moisture would have made a 16-foot log closer to just 185 pounds. So now we're getting closer to two people being able to carry a log, but you're still talking about massively long distances, and it still just didn't seem realistic. But then Cram found references to something called tump lines, which is an ancient method of carrying things where basically you lay a thick strap across your forehead right at the hairline and then attach the long ends of the strap to something behind your back so you're able to sort of lean forward and drag with your forehead. Hmm. And there have been several places in the world throughout history that have used this technique, but specifically in this case, Cram found an engraved piece of pottery in the Chaco Canyon that depicted men using tump lines. And they even found some preserved samples of yucca fiber that they say would have been strong enough to serve as a tump line. So, okay, we're pretty sure the Chacoans knew about this technology in general, but could it have worked with two men carrying a 16-foot log for dozens of miles? And at this point, Cram decided that the best way to prove it could be done was just to do it. So he got one of his undergrads named James Wilson, who was pretty into working out, I guess, and the two of them spent the summer of 2020 training together. Cram said, quote, some people baked sourdough bread during COVID. We carried sand and heavy logs around using our heads. <laughs> you know, everybody had to develop a hobby. It got real Exactly. Got to do something. It's outdoors. Mm-hmm. It's distanced. Yeah. <laughs> You're on opposite ends of a 16-foot log. Listen, it's just the new version of CrossFit. Once people mm-hmm. are hip to this, they're going to charge crazy amounts of money for the privilege. <laughs> <laughs> so they trained six to seven days a week for up to an hour at a time until they had reached their target weight of 185 pounds. Then they started working on their endurance with the goal of being able to travel 25 miles per day without a significant reduction in normal walking speed. That basically was the benchmark they'd identified that would prove mathematically the Chacoan population could have moved enough logs in the appropriate amount of time. And even then, it was still looking a little iffy. But their final breakthrough was the discovery of a traditional stick called a tokma, which is a sort of L-shaped tool about four feet high And basically what a tump line user will do is carry it like a walking stick as they're going along. And then when they want to take a break, they reach it around behind their back and stand up straight, which rests the log on the short end of the L at the top without having to completely put the log down or undo the straps. And once they had the Takmas, Cram and Wilson found that they were able to cover 25 miles in just under 10 hours with no fatigue or soreness other than a little bit of chafing where the strap rubbed at their foreheads. So they concluded that this was totally doable, especially considering (laughs) that they were a pasty undergrad and a (laughs) 50-something-year-old professor. (laughs) Sounds like they got real confident after getting real swole. So I don't know. Maybe once they get back down to their pasty scholastic self, I can uh, hear some of their more nuanced language other than, yep, we solved it. Good game, bro. (laughs) Yeah. 
Especially if you're like, you know, I'm not going to have done all this work for nothing. I have to have found an answer (laughs) if it meant I dragged logs around with my head for three months. I imagine we can find, if there are bones of them, that we can find the Like little grooves on their forehead? Right. Possibly. Yeah, we can tell if people are right-handed or left-handed, usually ancient, based upon what they did. Yeah, but how are we going to know that's because of carrying logs and not because they're like Klingons? Right. Well, I mean, the ancient aliens could have done anything to their spines. You don't know. (laughs) That's correct. I always forget that part. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. We're going to take a deep dive into our olfactory senses. And in particular, a pretty sticky question from BBC Future. Is air pollution causing us to lose our sense of smell? I mean, it seems Mm. reasonable. Oh, yeah. It is so reasonable. And we got some data. So dadgummit, but it's a condition known as anosmia, and it's exposure to PM2.5, which is the collective name for small airborne pollution particles. Largely, they come from the combustion of fuels and vehicles, power stations, and even our homes. Sadly, it's also previously been linked with olfactory dysfunction, but typically only in occupational or industrial settings, likely because that's where we're actually doing the studies. Mm -hmm. But new research is now starting to reveal the true scale and the potential damage caused by the pollution we breathe in every day. This is because on the underside of our brains, just above our nasal cavities, we have this thing called an olfactory bulb. It's a sensitive bit of tissue that bristles with nerve endings, and it's essential for the enormously varied picture of the world we get from our sense of smell. Not only that, it's also our first line of defense against viruses and pollutants entering our brain. But with repeated exposure, those defenses get worn down or even breached. Mm. So the question we were looking to answer with a lot of these studies was this. Were a disproportionate number of anosmia patients living in areas of higher PM2.5 pollution? And until recently, the little scientific research on this topic included a Mexican study in 2006, which used strong coffee and orange odors to show that the residents of Mexico City, which often struggles with pollution, tended to have a poorer sense of smell on average than people living in rural areas of the country. So they got some more colleagues, they got an environmental epidemiologist who created a map of historic air pollution data in the Baltimore area, and they set up a case control study of data from just under 3,000 patients who had attended Johns Hopkins Hospital over a four-year period. Around 20% of the people had anosmia, and most did not smoke, which is an important factor because that's a habit that is known to affect and dampen one's sense of smell. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, the levels of PM2.5 were found to be significantly higher in the neighborhoods where patients with anosmia lived compared to healthy control participants. And even when they adjusted for age, sex, ethnicity, body mass index, alcohol, tobacco use, the findings were consistent. So there are two potential routes to how pollution is wrecking our ability to smell. One is that some of the pollution particles are passing through the olfactory bulb and getting right into the brain. So we're getting this Mm. like "Mm, brain inflammation. And that's kind of messed up. (laughs) And in fact, in 2016, a team of British researchers found tiny metal particulates in human brain tissue that appeared to have passed 
brew the olfactory bulb. Ugh. Cool, 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 cool. Uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> it's not safe to breathe, is what you're telling me. Like, <laughs> yeah, we're the data's being real clear here. Barbara Maher, a professor of environmental science at Lancaster University in the UK, who led the study, said. At the time, the particulates were strikingly similar to those found in airborne pollution next to busy roads. We also should mention that domestic fireplaces and log stoves can be another possible source, even in the home. So fireplace fans, I'm sorry. Mars studies suggest that these nanoscale metal particles could, once in the brain, become toxic, contributing to an oxidative brain damage that damages the neural pathways. But to be fair, that is still just a theory. Okay. Let's talk about the other potential mechanism. It may not even require pollution particles getting into the brain. And that's because they're thinking by hitting the olfactory bulb on an almost daily basis, they cause inflammation and damage to the nerves directly on mm. that olfactory bulb, just wearing it away, kind of like how an ocean eats away at a shoreline over time. Mm. It's perhaps unsurprising that anosmia disproportionately affects older people whose noses have been assaulted by air pollution for longer, right? Mm -hmm. And more surprisingly, none of the Johns Hopkins patients lived in areas with excessively high pollution. I mean, if you're going to John Hopkins, you're probably living in a leafy area of right. Maryland. Nice right? little wealthy suburb there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, not great. So it's suggesting that even low levels of air pollution can cause enough problems over a long enough time period. Yeah. But the reason we're really looking at this, too, is we've talked a lot about Alzheimer's and dementia on this right. podcast as well. And we don't have an exact link, still unknown. But one theory is that environmental toxins enter the central nervous system via the olfactory bulb, triggering this cascade effect that may ultimately lead to neurodegeneration. Well, and from an evolutionary standpoint, you've got an opposite pressure where you say like, OK, you have this, frankly, big vulnerability where your olfactory nerves give a pathway directly into the brain, if that's given us all Alzheimer's and killing us because of our current polluted environment, there's some people saying, hey, we should clean up our environment. But there's mm -hmm. also the people who have really wide open olfactory nerves are going to die. And the people mm -hmm. who basically have no smell from birth and have no entryway into their brain, they're going to survive in this new toxic environment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nothing natural about the air pollution that we're all dealing with. And you can't ivory tower your way out of this. <laughs> like, well, yeah. And any disease that affects rich people is going to get more funding. So that's nice. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, you paid a lot for that perfume. Don't you want to smell it? <laughs> right, right. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from popularmechanics.com, and it's titled, Scientists Discovered How to Speed Up Time. Seriously. Well, okay. <laughs> no, 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 we want to slow it down. <laughs> yeah, well, they did do a little bit of that, too. And to clarify, this is not, you know, time machine status. I mean, sort of. But it is on the scale of quantum physics. Mm -hmm. So researchers, including Miguel Navasquez and University of Vienna's Philip Walther, explain the possibility of speeding up, slowing down, and even reversing the flow of time within a quantum system. The researchers achieve this by quote-unquote evolving a single photon as it passes through a crystal. Using an experimental device called a quantum switch, the single photon of light returns to its previous state before it ever makes the journey. However, this isn't exactly like a rewind button on your TV because usually viewers can see how things got from plot point A to B just sped up and in reverse. In quantum mechanics, however, simply observing a system causes it to change, mm -hmm. which makes it impossible to track a system's progress through time. 
Crucially, these rewinding protocols still work because they can be performed without knowing what the changes were or its internal dynamics, according to the scientists. Navasquez says they've also hit upon a method for going forward in evolutionary time as well. To make a system age 10 years in one year, you must get the other 9 years from somewhere. In a year-long experiment with 10 systems, you can steal one year from each of the first 9 systems and give them all to the 10th. At the end of the year, the 10th system will have aged 10 years. The other 9 will remain the same as when the experiment began. Okay. Which, Wait, hold on. I'm, like, it sounds like they're saying cannibalizing additional time somehow that you just have to accept has happened because if you see it happen, it won't. I believe that is a good summary of what, what? they're saying. Yes. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense to me. <laughs> but you got to admit, Time Cannibals is a great title for something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there are plenty of links to some of the other articles and studies that they've published. So if you're interested in looking up this article, you can. But. What they're saying, the key point, is that they can increase the capability of quantum processors by arming them with the possibility of reversing errors in a system. And it essentially may mean that you can actually look back in time and set to the previous computational state of, say, a quantum computer or a quantum router or something like that. So the implications, I think, will have to have uh, a lot more science done before we really get a clear picture of what all this means and how it can be practically used. But the fact that it's possible at all is really wild. Mm -hmm. In terms of what happens in our world, unfortunately, a single human represents a mind-boggling amount of information to quote-unquote rejuvenate. And the scientists estimate it would take millions of years to pull off for just one second. So that's unfortunate. But <laughs> not worth you it. Know. <laughs> but if it's true in the reverse, where in order to like stay young forever, you basically have to like offload your time to somebody else. That's basically the portrait of Dorian Gray. Like you're putting yep. all of your aging into <laughs> yep. that painting wow. in the attic. Yeah. Uh, he was a visionary, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's this like zero something where we talk about this. I'm like, well, where does it come from? And where does it go? I know I'm quoting Cotton Eye Joe. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm way off the rails. Well, once you get into particle physics, the similarities between that and like Buddhist philosophy become mm. pretty much the same. Mm. There's a book called The Tao of Physics, mm. where he goes through particle physics, but then he also talks to Buddhist monks. And at the end, there are quotes from, say, Roger Fenneman or a Buddhist monk, and you cannot tell the difference between them. Nice. Wow. Because it becomes very philosophical at that point. You just kind of have to, hey, just, this is what it does. Yep. That's right. What? Surrender mm-hmm. to the information, and maybe it'll <laughs> make sense when you approach oneness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Next link. Next link. So this is from Salon. Sleep patterns changed in the past 200 years. Some experts think we are better off than before. Hmm. So sleep, right? We all don't get enough of it. Also, because we're gadget obsessed civilization, Mm. we're now paying a lot of attention to the fact that we're not getting enough. (laughs) We've got a massive industry built around this, right? From apps to drugs to white noise machines to beds that have numbers or fold you. (laughs) Right. With all of these products, the global sleep market is expected to reach 188 billion by 2030. Wow. Man, the global sleep market. Yeah. Got to track everything, man. That's yeah, important. You do. <laughs> uh-huh. But obsessing over sleep, it's kind of a new problem. 
We've only recently discovered the role that sleep plays in getting rid of the amyloid plaques, which can lead to Alzheimer's and other cognitive impairments. Maybe gets rid of some of the pollution in our nose. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Pedram Navab, a neurologist who is a sleep medicine specialist and author of Sleep Reimagined, the fast track to a revitalized self. He laments to the author of the article that he has patients coming into him complaining that they are not getting enough REM sleep. So he tells them, you know what? You just need to get rid of that stuff. You don't need to figure out how much you have. You don't need to track it all down. Wow, that feels super gaslighty. Right. But after that statement, I had to look him up, right? I was like, <laughs> that's bold, right? And he does qualify. He's, you know, Brown, Stanford, all the usual suspects. Well, and I think there is something to if you stress about it, you make it worse. Yeah. Yeah. But before we lit up the world with electric lights and a little over 100 years ago, there was a period where people slept in two segments known as biphasic. Hmm. So during the Industrial Revolution, when the sun went down early, people went to sleep for a while, woke up in the middle of the night and did some writing, thinking, which I can personally understand when we had our power out for a week and the sun went down, I was bored. All I wanted to do was go to sleep. Yeah, you sort of have that instinct. It's like, well, there's nothing Mm -hmm. I can see, nothing nothing I I can do. Mm -hmm. I might as well take a nap. But it was 5 p.m., so I felt weird about it. Felt like a slacker. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Before biphasic sleep, though, some historians believe our hunter-gatherer societies slept in just one small stretch, kind of like we do now. They studied sleep patterns of three pre-industrial societies in Africa and Bolivia and found they got about 6.4 hours of sleep. Here again, I went to the source and looked up a study, and I found that it ranged from 5.7 to 7.1. So it's still in our our gap there, Mm. right? Uh, And it was a very small group of 90 people. So we really don't know how the ancients slept still, but we do have a good data on how we used to sleep when we started writing stuff down. So historian Roger Eckerk, who's been studying historical sleep patterns for the past 20 years, found prayer manuals from late 15th century, which offered specific prayers for the time between sleeps. Hmm. And some people would just pee, smoke tobacco, or even visit their neighbors and stuff. So Eckert says that one reason why some people do suffer from what has been termed middle-of-the-night insomnia is that in many cases, these individuals are just experiencing a remnant or echo of a long, dominant pattern of biphasic sleep. Mm -hmm. No, I'm definitely like that. I wake up Mm -hmm. in the middle of the night all the time. And I've found if I try to just go back to sleep, it doesn't work. The best thing Mm. I can do is go, you know, eat something, read something, reset my brain, and then I can generally go back to sleep within about 30 to 45 minutes. If I try to fight it, I'll be laying there trying to force myself to sleep for hours. Mm. Right. And getting caught in anxiety or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I typically wake up in the middle of the night as well and do try to force myself back to sleep. And is it working? (laughs) No, 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 not at all. Yeah, Yeah, that's why I need drugs for that sort of thing. Or, you know, as the article is pointing out, it's the forcing. Stop forcing. But again, that's where it gets gaslighty, right? Like, stop being depressed. (laughs) Right, right. Just choose to sleep. (laughs) Right, just be calm. I would also like to point out that for me, and I would like to see maybe these studies being done in the future, I'm a night owl. So I think there's some evidence to say that some people are naturally wake up early and some people live in the night because we would want that maybe for a hunter gatherer so that Mm -hmm. we could have some like guarding at night. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, no, I I am admittedly one of those really annoying morning people and I don't Mm. have any like no shade to people who are night people. I get it because I'm awake in the morning whether I want to be or not. (laughs) By three in the afternoon, I'm done. 
You're not going to get anything viable out of me by then. And so I can respect someone who's like, yeah, I slept till 10, 11 in the morning, but I'm also working till midnight. So right. it's just different. Mm-hmm. No sleep shaming. We're not. <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the first law of thermodynamics has been rewritten. How this lizard conspiracy led to murder. And what really happens to military pilots that defect to America? So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. (laughs) Bye-bye. 